This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the distinguished Simon Belanger. Good sir, we announced last week my... I'm not going anywhere. It's just a temporary, I'm not going to be around on the Thursday episodes. And uh, just to remind everyone here, if you haven't heard that announcement, go listen to the beginning of last episode. But we are looking for applications still. We're not going to rush it. We're going to find the right person. Send a one-minute video on why you'd be a great co-host with Simon on the news and earnings episodes to CanadianInvestorPod at gmail.com. And uh, you just have to be as cool, but probably not. Uh, you don't have to be as smart as Simon. Simon's the smartest guy I know. So uh, we'll just okay. leave it at that. <laughs> uh, and uh, final uh, little housekeeping item. If you haven't given the show a review, go ahead and do that. It takes all of 14 seconds to uh, leave us a review. Gives us a nice dopamine hit and lets the show grow. Simon, uh, my announcements are done. What what are you going to talk about today for the first episode? Uh, for the first segment of the show today? Yeah, so for the first segment, I'm doing a little bit of a kind of Canadian ish place in the world. So uh, a little bit more macro, but I think it's pretty interesting. People know that I work in the pension world and I wanted to have a look at the largest sovereign wealth funds and pension funds in the world. And I got that from the data from global SWF.com slash rankings. And it's in USD, so US dollars. So, you know, don't add us if you say, oh, I know the total amount of assets of the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board is actually more than that. It's because it's in USD and the Canadian pension funds are actually reporting in Canadian dollars. So they use their latest year end figures. And then when that wasn't available, they used estimates. So for the most part, I, you know, with the conversion, all that from what I could see, it was quite accurate. And before I get started with the list let's provide a bit of context here and when i did the national bank etf report uh last episode it showed that 339 billion in assets were invested across etfs in canada it might sound like a lot but keep in mind that some like some of the funds that we'll be talking about like literally dwarf these amounts so you're looking at the total value of etfs in canada they don't even come close to some of these pension funds that's how big they are um any any comments here before i get started on these lists no i'm just looking at the list and uh so is that like total aum on these uh total assets i i mean they don't i i guess it would be assets under management they qualify that as assets uh but i believe it it should be the same figure depending on you know what term probably just people use yeah yeah some these <laughs> some of these are absolutely egregious and 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 also the not like the global ones but also the canadian ones too like we got some we got we some got big pension funds <laughs> Yeah, definitely. We got some big ones in Canada. So I'll give the uh, top 10 lists in the world. 
Unfortunately, there's no Canadian ones in there. Uh, just to give some context on this. But we're not year's, far off of number 10. We're n- yeah, to, we're not yeah. far off, exactly. And then I'll mention all the Canadian pension plans that actually fall in the top 100. And there's quite a few that fall in there. So the first one globally at $1.45 trillion is the Japanese Government Pension Investment Fund, GPIF. The second one, and this one we hear a lot about it, is the Norwegian Investment Fund at $1.38 trillion. The next one here is $1.35 trillion, the China Investment Corporation. Again, in China, at just above $1 trillion, the China Statement Administration of Foreign Exchange Fund. Now, just below one trillion is the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority from uh, UAE. Now, number six on the list is at seven hundred and sixty-nine billion. Quite the drop from number five is the Kuwait Investment Authority. So, a lot of a few Middle Eastern countries here that we're seeing. Uh, next on the list at seven hundred seven billion is the National Pension Service of Korea of South Korea. Number eight. The Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia at $700 billion. This one, I believe it probably doesn't come at much of surprise because I think they're, if I know this correctly, they're the ones that uh, started live, right? Or backed it. Yeah, I was going to say how many, uh, how many billions have gone to uh, PGA Tour players and now... Uh, sports in general, I guess. <laughs> sports yeah. in general, yep. Uh, number nine, so six hundred ninety billion. So the last five here are very close uh, next to each other in terms of assets. So number nine is uh, six hundred ninety billion is the government of Singapore Investment Corporation, and then number ten is the U.S. Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. This is for U.S. federal employees. I believe they're all on defined contribution pensions, but that's the amount in terms of investments that would be or assets that would be from all of those employees. So again, these figures are all in USD, but just by the sheer size, I think it helps people understand how impactful these investment funds can be when they make decisions. I mean, you're talking like they if they make an investment of, you know, like $50 million, like they probably won't make that investment because it just does not move the needle for them. And if they do, sometimes it's just a kind of a a bet, a high risk bet. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not the end of the world. And we saw the teachers fund with FTX, right? And I was in the news, but, and I'll talk about teachers, like it, it's peanuts for teachers. I think it was 90 million. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they like, it's literally peanuts for them. I know it doesn't look good and they clearly should have done better due diligence, but I think it's just important for people to understand the sheer size of these funds. Another interesting shift, well, you just touched on with FTX, an interesting shift over the last 10 years has been how much allocation has gone to venture capital. There's been... These venture funds and, you know, their LPs are sometimes, you know, this 500 billion AUM pension fund, like, you know, state pension fund. And they've funneled a lot of it to some of these venture firms. And they've had so much money to deploy into startups and, you know, what are traditionally known as extremely risky assets. It's 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 go to a billion or go to zero type of uh, mentality. 
And uh, that's been a really interesting development I've seen as well, just looking on how the allocation of these funds has shifted. The shift to more and more venture capital has been an interesting development. Now, it, that's also very good for innovation as well, is that you know these startups are getting funded from these huge multi-hundred billion funds, but it's they're more speculative assets, there's no doubt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, I think the other one that I've been very critical of is private equity. Uh, just because a lot we've, we're seeing it in Canada with some of the large funds, and I'm talking about it uh, with the episode with Dan on commercial real estate that will be coming out very soon. And one thing that I have issue with is it's very hard to value that private equity. Because, yes, they have methods to do so, but they're not marked to market. So at the end of the day, and you've seen that, and the reason I talked with Dan in the episode is you've seen that discrepancy between read values that are in the exact same space as private equity. And private equity is like flat or slightly up where the REITs is down 40%, which makes absolutely no sense in my view and clearly shows that there could be some problem brewing at least for the private equity part of some of those portfolio i'm not saying they're zeros i'm just saying they i think that there's legitimate questions whether they're properly valued or not that's why people love assets like venture and pe that are not marked to market <laughs> it's like yeah just i know i've lost money just don't tell me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just don't value it every day and I haven't lost my money, you know? It's the same reason why people find like it's the same reason though why people treat the stock market like a casino when you can get a new price every second uh while the market's open whereas they would never th think of their house like that. I mean, technically, technically, you have a slight change in the value of your home every day if you got it appraised. Like, you know, not maybe not every day, but say, say someone came in, think of how different the housing market would be. If I knocked on your door and said, hey, it's time for an appraisal every single month, how people would treat that asset differently. Same way people don't mark to market on PE and, and VC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just don't tell me I lost money. No, no. But it's funny <laughs> how they like, they they'll definitely like put up those returns and say, oh, look at these returns. But it's just, yeah, I take issue with how they value them. Um, clearly, they're not in like, you know, pension funds. They're not traders. So typically, they'll buy assets to hold them for a while. And that's fine. But I just find there's a little bit of discrepancy when they look you know, the truth is probably in the middle between what the public markets are saying and private equity, because yeah, like you said, public markets tend to be a bit more like a pendulum and private equity. It's almost on the other end of the other end of the spectrum. Uh, but I, yeah, that's just a, a little rant on my end. No, you're right. But it's the same reason why public equities is actually such a good opportunity is because it's so irrational and Mr. Market is uh, this bipolar uh, analogy from The Intelligent Investor, which, by the way, for those who have not read The Intelligent Investor, you actually, like, of course, it'll say, it'll say you know, it's the, the Bible of value investing. It's, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's most recommended book. It is so boring, but the first 50 pages are invaluable because it talks about Mr. Market 
And this analogy of Mr. Market being a bipolar, you know, changes his mind every day to the upside, to the downside, the volatility of public markets, going crazy on news, super optimistic to super pessimistic. Use that as your advantage. Use Mr. Market as your advantage, right? And so, yeah, it's a little more manic than these assets that are not valued every day. But if you can remain calm among the the manic market participants, you can do extremely well. And 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 Buffett has been very vocal about that through the years. Is like stocks are amazing because they act like that. Because you can go against the grain. You can get amazing prices on stuff that should be, you know, theoretically 100% efficient. We all know that's not true. No, exactly. So now move on to the Canadian portion here. So at number 15 of the top 100 list globally is the CPP Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board at $422 billion. Number 21, la Caisse de dépôt de placement du Québec, which is QPP. They manage uh, the assets for QPP, but a few different uh, institutions on the Quebec uh, side as well. Number 31, the Public Service Investment Board. That's the pension plan for federal employees at $185 billion. Number 33 is teachers, so the Ontario Teachers Plan at $182 billion. Number 40 is BC Investment, so they manage the capital of several pension plan and other public trusts in BC. Number 57 at 100. Uh, I think I switched these over, or I must have made a typo error, but uh, I think it's probably around $157 billion, which is AIMCO, Alberta Investment Management Corporation. It invests for more than 30 pensions, endowments, and government funds. Number 68 at $92 billion, OMERS. So that's the Ontario Municipality Employee Retirement System. So typically, if you're a, an Ontario municipal worker, you'll be part of OMERS. Hoop H O O P P, which is the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan at number 77. And then the last one on the top hundred list at 54 billion is I IMCO IMCO, founded in 2016. It manages the capital of Ontario Pension Board and WSIB as well. So, you know, Canada may not have the may not be part of the top 10, but nonetheless, we have some pretty large pension uh, pension funds and that's why when you see in the news that one of these does an investment in whatever they you know makes the news whatever it is i think teachers at some point you know had a share of mlsc and like in the maple leafs or something like that um so when you see them making the news they have a lot of capital backing them but they're definitely operated like an institution so if you have a pension plan for example, that would own a sports team, they typically won't be very emotional. So there will be very just to business uh, because, you know, they're fund managers. They're not, you know, this rich billionaire owner that wants it almost as a a toy or something like that. So it's uh, just something to keep in mind that these pension funds, they, you know, when they make a move and it's in the news, that's why they have a lot of capital backing them. Did you know that? The Harvard University endowment by size would make this list. Really? <laughs> that's, okay. That's how absurd the Harvard University endowment uh, valued at uh, 
the end of 2021 at 53.2 billion of so, yeah, assets I, under management. That's pretty that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's probably right. It, it might actually be on the list. I don't have it in front of me cuz I just uh, put the the ones that uh, I wanted to I talk just looked, to. but it looks like it's all symbols for them, so Okay. Nobody got time for that to look. Yeah, they're probably right either at the very bottom of the list or just right out of it. That is um, crazy to think about. You know, these I'm amazed by these like tax-free hedge funds. You know, like what a business that is! I'm gonna start a tax-free hedge fund under a university or like a a church, like oh, what's the AUM on? uh, I was just in Utah, so it was top of mind. Like the Mormon Church, yeah, the Utah Mormon Church. Let me see if I can find this. Uh, the Mormon Church has amassed a hundred billion. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as of twenty twenty, the Wall Street Journal says the Mormon Church amassed a hundred billion. It is the best kept secret in the investment world. I, I gotta read this article. Oh, it's behind a paywall, of course. Pay $2 and read this article for the Wall Street Journal. That is insane <laughs> though, man. Or you, get like a, you can get Apple News Plus and just, uh, I think you have it on there included. Interesting. Okay. So finances of the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, over $100 billion. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tax-free $100 billion hedge fund. Uh, that is the best business maybe ever. Yeah, because maybe, in in this, the maybe is ever. it the same in Canada where religious organization get preferred or like yep. okay that yeah I I knew it was something like that in the U.S. I haven't really looked into it all that much, but okay, no, that's interesting. Let's convert our corporation to religion. Yeah. Well, let's start a like a ser- I mean, we have a bit of a you know cult following with the the listeners who've been listening for a long time. We love a good cult, you know. Let's like take this up a notch. And like change our status as like, you know, a serious cult. And then the ad revenue will be tax free. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think the CRA would would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, come on. All right. Um, something I, I like these types of topics, what I'm going to do next, which is uh, I, I took it right from jointci.com. So you, you can go on jointci.com. You can see like, you know, kind of our rationale for what we do. And as well, it's on video. So you could see that Simone just had to talk while he housed a bagel. It's a morning recording. I don't know if you saw that, but I was just absolutely, okay, okay. Yeah. I was housing a bagel during <laughs> yeah. your, uh, your pension. Oh, I saw segment. you. I thought you were saying I did. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, no, about no. That? While yeah. you're talking, now that, yeah, okay. yeah. that would be impressive. So people on the video just saw me like, like coffee, one hand, bagel. Uh, to or the, to saw the face. me going up and down with my desk, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. The standing desk, uh, back problems guy. All right. So this is around my decision to, uh, my decision with two portfolio companies that I own, Moody's and S&P Global. So ticker MCO and SPGI. So as many of the listeners know, I love holding equal weight duopolies. That's been kind of like part of my ethos, Simone, I would say, is, uh, you know, these these duopolies or oligopolies, and I just think of them as one position. So, you know, even if I have 25 portfolio companies, or 22, I think was the number before this, 
I really actually only look at my portfolio. I make a separate spreadsheet of how I view it, uh, which is really only 13 or 14 investment ideas. For instance, Visa and MasterCard, I equal weight them at 5% each. That's a 10% position for me. I don't, I don't go, oh, I have Visa 5, MasterCard 5. That's just the way my brain works because these are the same businesses. Now, I've traditionally thought of S&P Global and Moody's in the same fashion because they have, for the best part of the market, there's, there's also Fitch, but let's just say most of the market share is this duopoly of owning the, uh, the credit rating agencies. So these are the premier players in the credit rating agency business. If you need a bond rated, which you do, these are the two names in town. So you have this like regulatory moat. Uh, you know, you have this like, if, if you want to sell a bond to investors and it's not rated by one of these two, it's like they, they, they're, they're really not taken seriously. And so they have this like wonderful position in the market. And this is still true. But, but the two businesses have grown dramatically outside of the core credit rating agency businesses over the last like 15 years, I would say, primarily. And over the last 10 years in particular. And now there's been this kind of divergence in the two businesses in terms of what they do. They have like half the business is the credit rating agency. And then it's kind of like, what else? It's like the Canadian banks, right, Simone? It's like, you have to value them as like, we all know they do banking, but what else do they do? What else are they investing in? Uh, or like the telcos, right? Like how else, how are they investing that free cash flow? We all know they have an oligopoly on Canadian telco. It's kind of similar. So, Organically and through acquisitions, I feel that S&P has done a superior job to build the business X credit rating agency. So what I'll call X CRA, speaking of the CRA, X CRA, X credit rating agency. So looking at the business X CRA, S&P has built the market intelligent business, indices like, you know, you know, when we talk about the S&P 500, the indices, the index business is amazing. Um, the optionality they've built among the other segments, and with M and A, they just acquired IHS Market over, you know, the last twelve months. That was like a forty billion dollar merger. The so in aggregate, you have the market intelligence business, the ratings business, the commodity insights business, the mobility revenue business, engineering solutions, indices, and plats. They sell information largely, right? And XCRA, I find it very compelling because when you look at Moody's, it's basically Moody's Analytics is XCRA. And it's a phenomenal business, don't get me wrong. But even if you just compare it, Moody's Analytics versus S&P and market intelligence top line, you've seen them grow dramatically faster largely through M&A. And I'm cool with that. I'm good with that. Now, don't get me wrong. Moody's is still a fantastic business. It has an extremely wide moat. Um, and, you know, the credit credit rating agency is amazing. And their risk management software offerings under Moody's Analytics is kind of like the name in town. So they have a pretty wide moat there. That being said, I am moving the entire weighting of Moody's into S&P. 
So now it is truly what just one position, and it's not huge. It's like three and a half percent in total. So nothing crazy. Now, more important than everything I've just mentioned, you know, I've read, I've, I've, I've given kind of my high level reasons why. Of course, there's more to think about, but this is very high level. The important takeaway here is I have toyed around with this idea for close to two years now. And I don't jump into decisions for the sake of decision making. I don't do trades for the sake of trades, especially with a portfolio company as good as Moody's. Like there's nothing wrong with the business. It's a fantastic business. Uh, Berkshire's owned it for how many decades now? The reason I get more comfortable making that decision is getting closer to the analytics business myself, understanding S&P's products better and better. And and this is really important, right? Like I I work in this industry. Like I I, I know their position here. And so uh that's that's just kind of my overall decision. But the important takeaway here is I sat on this decision and didn't make one for about two years as I've equal weighted them. And uh that's important to to talk about because uh you know most people make decisions too fast. And maybe yeah. this will be the wrong one. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be okay with that, right? Like maybe it's not the right decision, but I've I've sat on it and thought about it for a long time. No, and I think that's, you know, that's a good explanation. I mean, I went over it uh, when I sold Teladoc, right? Um, I was thinking about it and I, I think it took my, it took about a year because I wanted to see where the business was going. And there were things that I still loved about the business, but there were really some solid question marks. And I wanted to see, you know, in the following year, as the environment kind of changed, we went from, you know, full on restriction, lockdowns, pandemic to now, you know, not having these restrictions again, and how it would impact their business inflation, and so on. And I came to the conclusion after that one year, that of, you know, in my opinion, I could use that money and, you know, invest it in better investment than Teladoc. And I think that's a similar assessment that you did is that in your view, uh, you know, S&P Global just makes more sense. Yeah, like, you look at them, X core credit rating agency business, and I think it's better. And I don't want to diversify. That's the biggest piece. Like, Owning another position when I have higher conviction in, in another one is is the Charlie Munger diversification, and it should be avoided at all costs, in my opinion. You know, diversifying for the sake of diversifying is bad investment strategy. Uh, you know, I and, and you know that could be that could be debated. That's just my opinion, but I think diversification should be avoided at all costs. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Anything else you wanted to add, or should I move on to our last segment here? Speaking no, let's. Of, yeah, speaking I, of SNP Global, <laughs> I didn't even actually know uh, you were doing this, so this is very related. This is good. Yeah, so in January, so basically, you know, uh, just uh, transitioned, which not very smooth at this point. But in January, <laughs> S&P Global had a report on the 2022 IPO market compared to previous years. And the data went back uh, five years, which was really interesting. And uh, we talked about IPOs before, um, you know. 
probably around a year ago. I think the market obviously was very different, as we'll see. And I'll give the high points here. And as most people probably know or are, you know, have the suspicion that it was not a great year in 2022 for IPOs. So globally, there were a total of 1671 IPOs in 2022 compared to 3260 uh, the year before. That's a decline of about 50%, just shy of that. The total proceeds from the IPOs went from 627 billion to 280 billion for a decline of 71%. And that I think is the most, I think, eye popping metric is not necessarily the volume is one thing, but the proceeds, I think it just shows that there's less um, appetite for IPOs and capital available for that. And in terms of numbers of IPOs, 2022 was actually in line with pre-pandemic uh, levels, but I'm talking here just solely volume. In 2019, there were 14, 19 IPOs for proceeds of 198 billion so that's still you know that's actually a bit less than what we saw last year in 2020 and 2018 there was a total of 1665 for proceeds of 211 billion and 2020 was a bit of a weird year as we all remember so they had a total of 1863 ipos but the bulk of it came to q3 and q4 of 2020 and total proceeds in 2020 was 330 billion so if people remember 2020 like the first half of the year because of the pandemic it was basically i remember vividly like you had ipos like delaying canceling um you know changing their plans and then the back half of 2020 like it was like a free-for-all basically you remember that yep i do and then the U.S., so if you kind of, the numbers I gave was definitely global, and I'll talk about Canada after the, the, the U.S. as well. So the U.S. saw a massive decline in IPOs. Um, so in 2018, so I'll go year over year, but also um, the total proceeds. So the volume, then the total proceeds. So I'll start with, I guess 2019 makes the most sense because I'm able to compare it to 2018. So 2019 saw uh, 1% year-over-year growth in IPOs compared to 2018 at 214, and the proceeds was 62 billion compared to 45, and that's an increase of 37%. In 2020, saw total of 427 US IPOs that was a double up basically from 2019 so you saw that increase and that back half of 2020 has strong back half and the proceeds went up 152% to 156 billion 2021 was the outlier we all remember that there was essentially you know growth stocks were Crazy multiples didn't matter whether you made money or lost money. Like people were just pouring. It was risk on and obviously IPOs benefited from that. So 908 IPOs in 2021. That was an increase of 113% over 2020, which was already a double up from 2019. And the proceeds were up. 81% from 2020, which I already had seen a large increase, and the total proceeds were $283 billion. And now 2022, it's a massive reversal. So year over year compared to 2021, that was a decline of 84% in total IPOs at just 149, and the proceeds was $21 billion, and that was a decline of 93%. 
Um, that's pretty... <laughs> That, like, I knew it was a bad year for IPOs, but especially looking at the proceeds, pretty crazy if you ask me. What are your thoughts on that? In 20, it, so it, it doubled, it grew up exactly 100% from 2019 to 2020. And then it grew more than 100% into 2021 in terms of number of IPOs. Yeah. And the stat that's actually astounding to me is the 2020 number. Because the, the 2021 number, of course, like, you know, you have this kind of hysteria, hysteria irrational exuberance, people running to go public. I, I get that. That that happens pretty much every time the market acts that way. Maybe not to this extent, but that happens. But the fact that, like, the world just, like, shut down for the first half of that year, all of that volume was in, like, a quarter and a half, Oh, yeah. Like that, that's what's amazing about that number of 427 IPOs is that that happened basically like, okay, pause, 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 the world shut down to, all right, go, you know, like in the, in basically Q3, everyone took off, you know, everyone was having a chill, relaxing, uh, you know, year at home, but not investment bankers. They were busy, busy, busy. And, and we saw that in the results. Like, 2020 and 2021, like Morgan Stanley had like absurd years. Yeah, Goldman uh, Sachs too. Goldman yeah. Sachs, yeah. Those big investment banks, they did quite well. And yeah, I think that's a really good point because 2021 was basically a continuation of the back half of 2020. Exactly, you have like, yeah. You have basically six quarters that things went completely crazy <laughs> on the IPO exactly. front. Um, I don't think that's, you know, that's a strong Almost statement. Almost really Almost really four quarters because the fourth Q of 21 wasn't too great. No. Um, I think maybe people were still listing, but the the market was seeing a clear uh, a clear correction by early November. Yeah, because I think, too, the markets were starting to anticipate central banks looking at raising rates because if we remember, you know, inflation was starting to, uh, to pick up at that point. I think, uh, yeah, the context definitely... Interesting. But if you look at the largest US IPOs in 2022, um, they're not, <laughs> they're not, uh, you know, the most, uh, uh, you know, they're, let's just, I'll just name a few names because I don't, I, I don't really know most of these, but uh, the top three names at uh, 1.8 billion of the gross amount offered, 1.7 billion, and 1.1. So, in order, Skybridge Multi Advisor Hedge Fund Portfolio, Corebridge Financial, TPG Inc. So, I mean, I wasn't familiar with these businesses, are you? Like access income fund, Screaming yeah. Eagle acquisition corp. It's basically a lot of like financials. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bunch of like financially financial engineering to go public, essentially. Yeah, and as we can see, the amounts are quite small. No Airbnbs, right? you know, no. blockbuster <laughs> type thing, right? Yeah. yeah, not uh, yeah, not not really headliners, and you know. In looking, according to uh, EY report to the IPO trends in Q1 for 2023 was down even to uh, 2022. Uh, so that's something just to take note. It's still, I think it's starting to pick up a little bit just now. But again, I think depending what we see with interest rates, and obviously I talked about Value Village that did, um, you know, a decent amount with its IPO. I don't remember on top of my head the actual proceeds, but 
um, dated a decent one. But I think it's going to be hit or miss, especially if you have the central banks talking about even potentially hiking more. Um, that could even dampen further uh, the IPO market this year. So we'll have to see. It's hard to predict. And Canada as well saw a sharp decline in IPOs. So here's the data excluding SPAC. So there was a total of 42 IPOs, which was down 45% year over year. The bulk of them were mining IPOs. And there was a total of 1.3 billion in proceeds, which was down 85% year over year. And in Q1 2023, Globally, there was a total of 299 IPO raising 21.5 billion. That was a decline of 8% on a volume basis and 61% on a proceeds basis. So still, you know, it's like I just mentioned, we're still having a pretty tame IPO market right now. Remains to be seen what we'll see in the back half of 2023. And this is just Q1, clearly. But I think the the main reasons here that were reported in, or mentioned in this report for the sharp declines in 2022 and 2023 is probably to no surprise to anyone who's been listening or paying attention to what's going on in the markets. But aggressive rate hikes from central banks, Fears of global recessions, sharp declines in valuation from this tech space, which you alluded to in 2021, right into 2022, we saw that decline, turmoil in the crypto and banking sector. So these are all some of the big factors that affected IPOs here. And SPAC activity so far this year is at its lowest since 2016. Uh, there were high liquidation rates. Good riddance. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> and as a whole, SPACs have performed poorly for investors. And liquidation rates for people not aware is basically a SPAC goes public at a set price of $10. And then the I think it's a sponsor of the SPAC. I don't exactly remember the exact exact um, term to use, but let's just say the sponsor has a spe specified time period. I think usually it's two years to find an acquisition and essentially kind of, you know, that that company uses the SPAC and is listed publicly. That is a time period I won't miss of SPAC mania. Yeah, in, it was in what, crazy. In what world was that a good idea? Uh, well, there's, some, uh, there's a few SPAC ETFs still, and they're not doing all that well not as bad as i i would have thought but uh still not <laughs> not that well but it's it's really interesting just uh for the ey insights that i just went over just interesting to see what they're they're seeing right now and for people you know thinking there might be some unicorns coming to the public markets um We'll have to see have you heard anything about stripe or still i was just gonna yeah, say yeah. it's it's been in limbo for so long now that I I don't really know. I, I, I feel know like they, they missed their opportunity. Well, it they had a feels, down. Yeah. They had a down round. I think at fifty six billion uh, valuation. Okay. For up, for, these are loose numbers, but they uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it was roughly they raised at a hundred billion valuation when the market was hot, like like venture round. Yeah, and then they raised again on a down round maybe eight to 12 months ago uh, at almost a little less than half or a little more than half, I guess. Can you imagine if they raise at like summer of 2021, if they went uh, public, how much money they could have gotten? Oh my God. been crazy. Yeah. yeah. But it's important to remember here, like that's not always a good thing, right? If you, ra if you raise right at the peak, because 
I think there's tax implications, right? And it really messes with employees too. Um, because if you, if you go public, they, they get all this money, all their, their, you know, their, their stock becomes public. They're getting a bunch of now public stock-based compensation and it's not worth what it will anywhere near what it was. It's not always a good thing to raise that money like long-term. Like, yeah, it's nice to raise the high valuation, but Growing in, growing back into that valuation can be an uphill battle for these tech companies. Same in public, same in private markets. Like if I raise, if I if I go raise a round of stratos for stratosphere at fifty million, okay, and we need more financing, and we have like a down round at thirty million or something, I screwed myself. Like you're basically dead. Having a down round before series like D is basically a death wish. So it's not, you know, there's more to this than than it appears. Yeah. Mm. No, that's fair. And you know that space better than I do for sure with Stratosphere. But um, yeah, I I was just thinking about Stripe. Couldn't help think that they left money on the table, but maybe it's not as simple as that. Stripe has built such a phenomenal business and they have this like amazing developer ecosystem. And, you know, everyone building companies these days is just, putting it through Stripe, like big companies and small companies. And so they're kind of running away with it at this point. We'll see if uh, some more competition comes in, but it's it's pretty tough to build out what they've built. Um, there's no doubt. That being said, the knock on it as an investor is if competition does come, you just squeeze the hell out of that take rate. You squeeze that take rate from, you know, 30 cents a transaction plus 2.9% to, oof, I don't know, basically a race to zero. And it becomes a much, a much worse business. Yeah. And there, are, there's definitely companies that if they decide they could give them a run for their money, uh, would probably take some time. But there's definitely some companies that would have the resources to do that. And if people want to fight it out, they can. I'll be over here owning the payment rails that they rely on. Yeah. Visa, then he- you know, we could have 30 stripes, but they're all running through Visa and MasterCard. All good for my portfolio. No and issues you there. Have, you have a Walmart and Costco say, oh, you guys have fun with that tech space. We'll just, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, keep our capital extensive companies where no one can enter the markets. Um, we're good yeah. with that. This I'm I I would say TSM's highest on my watch list right now. I just yeah. wish that it. I just wish I acted when I should have. You know. You know when I really wanted to buy it was when uh, Buffett sold Buffett Buffett's thirteen F was yeah, was a too. sell mm-hmm. because I was like, what is what is this? Why do you own it for a quarter? Uh, I think they, um, from what I've read, I think they just didn't fully understand the geopolitical landscape. I think they he, knew he it. He answered but, it in person when I was there. Yeah, that, that's, okay. that's the that's the gist of it. Yeah, that's the gist of it. But which is super complex. But again, you have to, like, like I've talked before, you have you got forty percent in Apple there, Mister Buffett. Like, you know. yeah, and you have to look at probabilities too, and you just assess like. You know, you do the best you can by trying to put different probabilities on various outcomes. And obviously, it's a non-zero chance that, you know, there could be an invasion. But whether that is high enough and the expected value is there or not, 
then uh, that's for people to decide. That's how I think you need to view it because it's you can't think that it's a not it's a zero percent chance that uh, China invades Taiwan. It's clear it, it isn't. I don't know the probability, but it's also not a hundred percent. So where it lies, right. I mean, that's where your assessment has to begin. Right. I just. It's not easy though. <laughs> I just yeah. I just worry that yeah. uh, I have no real insight to even begin to estimate what those probabilities are. The point that I've been trying to make, and I sound like a broken record on the pod here, is if that happens, there's a lot, a lot of large caps that are affected. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. It's, it's all of them uh, affected by that. So it doesn't oh, the- make sense. It doesn't make sense to assign the geopolitical risk just because Taiwan's in the name of their company. You know what I mean? Just because Taiwan's in the name of Taiwan Semiconductor shouldn't uh, hold more weight in risk when everyone's making chips there, when all the foundry capacity is there to begin with. No, no, I know what you mean. It's like the Peter Lynch thing, right? Like he always says, invest in businesses that have the most boring names ever. (laughs) Like (laughs) The most boring names ever. If it's a sexy name, if it's got a sexy ticker like... uh, Ticker AI, nah. What is that? C three A. Has that has that bubble collapsed yet? C three AI stock. That'd be. Has that collapsed yet? No, of course not. No, it's and it'll it'll triple from here too. Probably, I bet. Fucking what a joke. I don't even know what they do. I don't think their investors know what they do. That's the problem. I don't know what they do either. I've heard they, of the name, but that's their the quarter was of it. atrocious. Their quarter was atrocious. Oh, okay. Not surprised. I looked at it. It was yeah. terrible. It's just the uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks for listening to the pod, folks. We really appreciate you. Um, we're probably going to stop announcing the the you know open position to co-host the Thursday episodes with Simone after today. So one last announcement is that we are looking for some A player to come in and do the Thursday news roundups. A good a, a good person recognizes the show. They understand the culture. They understand the ethos. So we'd like it to be a listener, uh, to be completely frank. We'd like it to be a listener because they understand the show and they understand uh, the, the consistency that is required uh, of making content here twice a week or yeah. once a week for the situation. Yeah, and when you hear this, so you'll be hearing this episode on the 10th. So, uh, you know, all of this week, send it over to us. We'll have our Gmail, CanadianInvestorPod at gmail.com in the show notes. Send it over to us, I would say, by the 16th, which is the Sunday. And then the following week, Brayden and I will start looking at them. And then we'll, you know, we appreciate everyone who sends a video in. We'll make a short list. We'll reach out to those that uh, we want to explore further. And like Brayden said, it has to be the right fit. Probably the last thing I didn't mention is also someone that wants to keep learning. I think that's really important and it's it goes with the role, right? It has to almost have, well, I would say it has to be a passion where you're really interested in this stuff and doesn't even like feel like work when you're learning and researching. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because we did it for a long time before it had any sort of economic value for us uh, because we liked learning. If you just like, I'm scared to look, but like if you look at like really old episodes, I don't know anything 
like, and I still don't. Like, we're still learning constantly. That's that's a good point, Simone. Like, this is a never-ending learning cycle, and that's what makes it fun and exciting is it's like forced learning, right? Like, I like setting up things in my life where I, I have to do the, the action to the desired outcome that I want to have, and this is certainly one of those. So, a one-minute video on why you'd be a great co-host, why you'd mesh with our... Uh, our beloved Simone over here to Canadian investor pod at gmail.com. That is Canadian investor pod at gmail.com. A little selfie video, you know, give us your personality, but also flex that you know what you're talking about. That's a good combo. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.